Winner of the Edgar Award, the Seamus Award, the Anthony Award, Harlan Coben is the number one best-selling author of 14 previous novels, including The Woods. Which one of these do you think is your, your best? It's always hard to ask an author. I always like the most recent, so... <laughs> yes. You know, that's uh, self-serving or accurate. You know, yeah. It's the freshest in your mind, I suppose. I guess. Yeah. You know, it always, you know it is, it's like, you know when you wrote that college essay you thought was so brilliant? And you find it now, and you go, oh, my God, it's horrible. What did that kid know? So anything that's older, I sort of think the same thing. What did I know? I'm better now. So for that reason, I think, um, I do always think the most current book is the best. And the most current book is Hold Tight. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Nice to be here. Thank you. When I read the title Hold Tight, I thought of the Rolling Stones and how they often co-opted well-known phraseology hold tight is something that you would definitely say to a child of yours. Yeah, I mean, the story's all about you know, parents and, and children and how far you go to protect your kid, how tightly you should hold on, when you should let go, all these questions that interest me as a father of four and also just the right arena for, for mayhem, crime, and uh, thrillers. You may bridle at being referred to as a, as a marketer, but this is how you're packaged to someone who's very competitive, who's very uh, interested in the business, who loves to uh, see his, as any author might, titles arriving at number one on the bestseller list. Do you find this an insult? Well, no, I think it's probably accurate, except for the fact that I don't know any author who's not. I mean, uh, I've heard stories of... Uh, Norman Mallor making sure that he always signed the, uh, told him, telling their author, oh, make sure you sign all the copies when you go into the store because then they can't return it. I've known people who have seen Philip Roth moving his books to face out at bookstores. The idea that only commercial authors or authors who sell well care about their rankings or how many sales they have is, of course, ludicrous. Uh, every literary writer I know cares as much as any crime writer, romance writer, sci-fi writer. This is not something that's unique. In my case... Uh, but maybe they're not quite as open about it as you are. Well, I'm not that open about it either. I think that maybe more open is the word, but honest would probably be the word. I mean, yes, I've checked my Amazon ranking. I know I'm the only author in the free world who's ever looked at their Amazon ranking. <laughs> I probably do it less than most. And this particular book, Hold Tight, was my, I had number one in the New York Times bestseller list actually the first time and at the same time it also simultaneously was number one on the London Times list. I don't say that to brag, but that was a hell of a day for me. I mean, this is one of the great moments and any author who would deny that they would want that is probably right for playing into the idea that they are an artist and having to play that role to the max. The great Philip Roth is one of my favorite not my, my favorite writer probably of all time. Um, in his new book Exit Ghost has a line that I love he talks about writing. Uh, I think he's actually quoting somebody else, but he says, amateurs wait for the muse to arrive. The rest of us just get to work. And that's always been my attitude. Well, this is something I've heard from many authors, though, is that it is work. You get up in the morning, you produce your thousand words, then you see what, what's happened. Work with it, you massage it. Well, you have to treat it like a job. That's the, that's the whole thing. Did James Joyce treat it as a job? Oh, I think most great writers, Dostoevsky, Oscar Wilde, Charles Dickens. For some reason nowadays, um, writers have to be artists, and they have to be above having anything, any financial motivation whatsoever. 
But there's no author, no great author who has survived 100 years. You can really say that about him. All the authors I just mentioned. Yeah. Michelangelo didn't paint the Sistine Chapel because he looked, looked at it and got inspired. He painted it because the church paid him and made him sort of paint it. So the, uh, this is something that's sort of new today. Uh, Dickens was a, a superb businessman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is only today. It's sort of interesting where this is somehow looked down upon. I've heard many authors say that once they have given birth to their child, and incidentally, uh, you've been quoted as saying that your books typically take about a nine-month gestation period. Yes. They don't want to have anything more to do with it. It's out in the world, and they move on. Well, uh, here's the thing. I don't know, first of all, I don't, I don't know if authors are being honest when they say that. I really don't. I don't know any author that I've personally met who doesn't care about how it sells. It, it, what a writer says, I write only for myself. I don't care if anybody reads it. To me, I'm here. I think they're lying, number one. Number two, it sounds to me like saying, I talk only to myself. I don't care if anybody hears it. Yeah. Writing is communication. From the beginning of man, when we could scratch on cave walls, if, no, if I write a book and no one reads it, it's clapping with one hand. Yeah. The reader is the other hand. And, and of course, the, the, if you're following that logic through, kind of the more readers you have, the more you're writing, the more you're communicating, the more your word is getting out. I mean, that doesn't mean that you write for the masses. It doesn't mean that you say, geez, there's people who are buying books in Costco and Peoria. I'd better appeal to them. But I would rather have more people read my book than less. And I think, I think when you're asked most authors, honestly, we just mentioned guys like Philip Roth and Norman Mailer and these guys. These guys change publishers. They change agents. They change editors. Why? In some way, I guarantee you, part of it was to either get more money, which is probably not it, but to spread the word. I've never chased the dollar, but I do chase readers. I want people to read my books. I'm not ashamed to say that. I'd like to actually congratulate you on the first paragraph in the book. Uh, Marianne nursed her third shot of Quavo, marveling at her endless capacity to destroy any good in her pathetic life. When the man next to her shouted, Listen up, sweet cakes. Creationism and evolution are totally compatible. And then you described him as having a big bushy mustache straight out of a 70s porn flick. I thought that was superb. Thank you. Thanks. It's, it's, and I've been trying to remember the name of the Lou, the guy in uh, Deep Throat. What was the guy's name? Do you, I don't remember. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I read. I read for exactly this kind of beautiful word picture. Thanks. You reach a staggering number of readers. Uh, every year I've read that you sell something like two and a half, two point seven million books. It's not about the money anymore. Right. Wouldn't you change your approach now to, to try to come up with something different that would stand? First of all, you write the way you write naturally, and that's what you produce. Right. And it's very, very popular. Can you write in a different way that could be, quote, more literary and therefore perhaps withstand the test of time a bit better? And is this something that, now that you've reached the zenith of popularity, mm -hmm. is this something that rests with you? Well, you just wrote sections in my book that, that you like, so I'm not really sure that I, I don't do some of that now, but I tell a story. I think that there's a big, one of the big problems with some of what you're, what you're referring to as literary, I don't know if I would, or books you think are going to survive, which I don't, is that they're not telling stories. 
And again, every great novel that survived a hundred years, the names we're giving before, were all storytellers. All those guys had crimes in their books, all those guys had compelling plots, as well as the writing. With one doesn't preclude the other. In fact, one should, if everything's working well, enhance the other. The other thing is, I, when you say survival, let me ask you this. All right? I, my first Myron Bolotar book, which still sells you know, in the thousand, tens of thousands each year, came out in 1995. So that's uh, 13 years ago. How many literary novels that were written in 1995 are still bought and read today in 2008? Yeah, but that's the, the question is, do, do you equate popularity with quality? I no, and, but nor do I nor do I not, and nor does it preclude it. I mean, no, so it works both ways. I write what I write. I write the best book that I can every single time out. I don't like books that are slow and paced. I just don't. Uh, that's, that's my own preference. I write a book that I would love to read and my friend would love to read. I would write what I call the novel of immersion. I want this to be the book you take to, on vacation to Saint-Tropez, but you can't leave your hotel room because you have to know what happened in Hold Tight to Mike and Tia and Adam and all the rest of these people. And that's uh, exactly what people say about your books. That's, that's what I want to do. How long it's going to register with them, different people react different ways. This book has a fairly emotional ending. It's raising, Hold Tight raises a lot of issues that I've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of response about. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times yes. on it. And, uh, so how much, you know, how much more can I ask for? Um, so, you know, you're making a difference, and you're making people think. You're moving people. You're, you're, you're genuinely starting conversations, and they're entertained. You know, if you go in with goals necessarily to do certain things, you're often in more trouble. I, I worry about telling the story. Everything has to be slated to the story. If I'm able to throw, that doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean I can't have themes. It doesn't mean I can't have um, things to say. But all of those have to be slated to the stories. You know, the, the Hemingway said you have to kill all your darlings. You have to make sure that you are telling the story you're supposed to tell, that I'm not stopping to navel-gaze, that I'm not stopping to give you my view of the Iraq war. If it's in the course of the book, great. And if not, this is the hard thing for most writers, just keep your mouth shut and tell the story. It has to be relevant to, yeah, to the... Course. What, to the... Uh, has to, to be the story. Yeah. Everything, you know, I, my favorite quote on writing, my very, very favorite quote on writing, and if your listeners are interested in writing, this is my the best... Elmore Leonard says, I try to cut out all the parts you normally skip. That's utterly brilliant. And in today's society, with DVDs and the internet and TV and all of that, you have to make every... I ask myself on every page, every paragraph, every sentence, is this compelling? Is this moving the story forward? Is this gripping? And if it's not, i got to find another way to say it. doesn't mean I can't have descriptions as you just read pointed out, I do. doesn't mean I can't have settings, I do. But those have to be done in a way that's going to be compelling. And what is that way? I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to give the secret then? I don't know. No, it's, there's no secret. I, mean, I wish there was a secret. Um, but you must, I mean, I, and I don't know if it was a criticism or not of the genre, but uh, but it's been said that uh, execution, I think it was Chandler that said that execution is the most important thing when it comes to a crime fiction. I don't know. You know and, and so, so as a result, yeah, yeah. there's a certain sameness to the books that, uh, that you've written and that other crime uh, thriller genre writers have written. Well, that's a hard thing to say. First of all, I'm 46 years old and I have... 19, I think, published novels. So there's certainly going to be some overlap in themes. But you know what? 
Philip Roth has done a lot about the Jewish Shiksa Newark, New Jersey experience. <laughs> Too much. Yes. Um, you know, Updike has done the rabbit. Uh, so uh, I don't know any, I don't know too many writers, I shouldn't say any of some. I don't know too many writers who really have that much, you know, and all the writers we've talked about before, there are similar themes in all of their books. Yeah. So I don't know why a crime writer would be held up to a different standard. Yeah. Um, and I would also argue the genre right now, uh, if you want to call it a genre, I call it form, there's never, it's the golden age. I mean, there's never been more guys doing it well and doing it in different ways, be, you know, from the from the old-fashioned, cozy type of the Agatha Christie on, on that side, people like um, Carolyn Hart, all the way across to Dennis Lahane and Michael Connolly and George Pelicanos and Laura Lippman, um, Lisa Scarlini. These people are all, all doing different stuff, better than it's ever been done before, um, and we're held up to a higher threshold than has ever been, which is good. All, all that's good. Well, the other thing, too, Somerset Mom talked about his criteria for great literature, and it was exactly what you've just said. It's, it's keeping people interested in turning the pages and entertaining them. Yeah. So it's funny, though. Your uh, form is a sort of second cousin to people like Ian McEwen and Martin Amos. And the well, what's you, interesting is most of them, I mean, I've met Ian McEwen. I went to college with David Foster Wallace. And I've never heard one of them say it. Yeah. I've never heard one of them say it. Why, is it, why is it, though? Why, why is it there? I mean, you know, Ian McEwen has written crime fiction. Yeah. Um, and David Foster Wallace reads crime fiction. He said that you knew how to end a novel, and he didn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, he told me that at one of the reunions that we went to. But the, usually the people who sort of say this are the people who are not successful and thus need to knock something else down. How do you also judge Ian McEwen or Martin Amos or whatever being a level ahead. I don't know. How do you base it on? Uh, on what four or five reviewers for Snooty Magazine said? The general public? I mean, how do you, how do we base that on? And again, if we go back in time and in history, were these great authors, the authors that are still surviving today that we talked about, were they critically acclaimed at the time that they were around? I don't know. And I don't really, these are issues that it's fun to discuss. Yeah. I don't really care. I mean, I, I go through it and, and it's interesting, but I find people who concentrate most of them are usually trying to overcome some of their shortcoming on their part. Okay. I've never really seen, I, I, you know, no one's ever really said it to me, I guess directly. I've never met a reviewer who belittled my work other than the normal stuff that goes on. And those who belittle me, I've seen Martin Amos belittled, I've seen Ian McEwen belittled. So I don't really know, I don't think I write the same kind of thing. Maybe if you want to call what they're writing literature and what I write popular, that's fine. I have no problem with that. You know, this is what I write. I write good popular fiction. That if popular is a bad word, then for some people, that's not. There was a really good review I read by uh, Mark Lawson in The Guardian. I can't remember which, which uh, novel it was, but um, he came up with a lovely little quote when it comes to reading you. It's, he said, and this was a, a while back, get a second opinion on the death certificate. Damn, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? I think it means that sometimes people in your... Novels, you may think they're dead, but they're not dead. Yes, that's a common theme of mine, yeah. Why is that a common theme? I like, again, I prefer the, the missing or the disappearance to the dead, uh, and for a couple of reasons. But I've done both. problem is, again, I, my, my books are so plot stuff, so to speak, that there's nothing I haven't done four or five times over. I mean, in whole type, you know, you have five different families, you have the, you know, you're dealing with. Everything from, from, the, from kids missing to, to, to drugs, um, to kidnappings, to regular old school stuff, to a kid who, who, who needs a transplant. I mean, there's so much in one 
look, this is just my, this is the way I like to do it. But I, um, the reason I prefer missing to dead is it adds another element. If somebody's dead, you're solving a crime, they're at the end, that's it. But when somebody's banished, there's hope. And hope is a great thing to write about, because hope can be the most wonderful, uplifting thing in the world, and hope can crush your heart like it's a styrofoam cup, like nothing else can. So the stakes are much higher, the possibility is that that person is still alive. So that's why I love to write about a disappearance rather than a straight-out murder. Murder, there's no chance at the saving. I mean, you can, you can get revenge, but you can't really find the same sort of redemption you can find when maybe someone's still alive. And that's such an important part of people's lives, too, isn't it? I mean, people that are close to suicide, they typically will commit suicide if they give up hope that they can be loved. Right. Yeah, hope is, a, I mean, hope is a, one of the fascinating things to write about. It's also, I think, really compelling. If I tell you I'm going to write about someone you once knew who was murdered and maybe finding out who did it, that's one thing. If I tell you that person you thought was, may, may, may still be alive, that's, that's pretty compelling. That said, the whole type doesn't have that, and the one I'm writing now doesn't have that, but it's an element I've certainly written about in the past, and I will write about again. There's a parallel drawn with Osama bin Laden the fact that, that he sort of disappeared and people don't know where he is. There was a bit of that with Saddam until they found him. Right. Did you think about... Not really. That? No. Okay. Another thing uh, that you're good at is crook craft. Details on how the crooks think and uh, what kind of mischief they get up to, like cutting license plates in half and things like that. Where'd you get all that to good stuff? The truth, mostly I just make it. I don't know if it would actually work in real life. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a lazy researcher, and the fact is that every once in a while, if I tell many people, this is fiction. I get to make stuff up. So it seems actually to me that the part of cutting the, the thing in half would be much too much work. Um, but I was thinking how I, would, how I could really throw somebody off, and that sounded like a fun thing. And then other times I thought about, like, if you just take black tape, and it's the same color and same width, as the lettering, you can turn D's into B's from a distance or something like that. So this is just my own mind working. What would I do if I were criminal? What would I, you know, it's the same thing as with the good guys. What would I do if I were that? I mean, I think in the whole time, at the end, except with the exception of one particular character, there's really nobody dead. As people are making mistakes, trying to live their lives, trying to do well, but wrong still seems to find them. I find that much more compelling than serial killers who, ha- who hack up people for no reason or or you know, political conspiracy that leads to the White House or whatever else. I prefer to write about regular people and just something something goes a little bit wrong in their, in their attempt to find the so-called American dream. And the difference, and I'm taking, talking to Harlan Coben, the difference between a mystery crime novel and a thriller, apparently you went from the former to the latter after leaving the series that you wrote, the latter being more focused on the actual commission of the crime versus the crime having already been committed and how it's solved. Is that, so that's accurate? or I don't uh, I hate debates of mystery versus thriller because I don't really know where I fit in. Yeah. If you read the modern Bolotar novels, the plotting is actually not all that different. Um, other than being focused on, 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 my, on the hero of Myron Boltar, and sometimes the things aren't directly happening to him, though most of the time they are, versus the thrillers, I really don't think there's too much difference in the plotting and too much difference in the resolution. I still love the last twist. I still love to fool you. I twist. That's, that's what I do. I know people think it's not a verb. I don't know. But, uh, but, but I do like to write books with a lot of twists and turns. I really want to fool you and play with your expectations. 
you know, if it's a mystery or a, or a thriller, or I actually prefer the British crime fiction term, which is more all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. I don't really like those terms. I don't like any kind of terminology because it always limits readers down. I mean, is this guy writing Private Eye? Are they writing Cozy? Are they writing um, Medical Thriller? They, I don't really care. I want people to read what's good in, in whatever group that's in. So I've heard that before, certainly. Uh, and Myron may be more classically a mystery because he was a detective, you know, he was a sports agent or just a regular agent now, in the tradition of a very different than um, the Raymond Chandler kind of tradition. But the plotting was always fairly similar to, to more of a thriller with a mystery element. So other people, again, this is a job of you, or other people can, can define me anyway. I don't necessarily agree with it, though, but... I know where you're coming from, I just don't agree with okay. Can we talk a bit then about, about you as a businessman? You've pretty well achieved, I think. Well, maybe you haven't. Selling 2.7 million books a year and and making 3 or $4 million per book. First of all, those are not figures I've ever confirmed. I know where you got them from. They're not exactly accurate. I won't say which direction. I don't talk money. I kind of made it sound like I did, but I, I, I refuse to talk money. What he basically had said to me was, I've done research, I've spoken to your agent, whatever, you're selling 2.7 or 2.8 million books a year. This is also two or three years ago now. And so you have to be making at least seven figures. And I said, okay, fine. That's all I said. Yeah, okay. But whatever. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of sales and a lot of money. To and, we can all agree on. and what I want to get at is yeah. one of the quotes that stood out, and I think that was in the Atlantic, yeah. the article, was that nobody gave you a leg up, and you're proud of that. I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, I don't know any writer who really didn't do it on their own. There seems to be a belief amongst those who are unpublished or those who are not doing all of that well that there's a secret cabal, a secret handshake that gets you to the next level. I mean, I've gotten emails of this sort. If you would just give me a blurb, I'll reach that next level. I'll do this. You know, if I knew somebody in the business, I would get it. But every writer that I know who's been successful has never had any of I don't know one writer who had, other than someone who's, a, a, let's say, a family member. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the writers that I know and I'm friendly with, talking about David Foster Wallace before, Dennis Lehane, Michael Conley, Laura Liv, myself, all the writers that I know that have been Dan Brown, right, who also went to college with me, mm-hmm. no, no one was helped out by a family connection. You really did it on your own. And tell me about your pride. You know, I've worked in a business before this, when I was first out of college. Your, your family's business? My, yeah, my grandfather owned the travel company, and I, and, I, and I went there, and I did very well with it. I, I took it to different places, but no matter what I did with it, it was nepotism. You never get full credit. No, you can't. Yeah. This is totally on my own. I wrote the first, I mean, I, I was paid for my first Myron Bolotar novel. I used to be ashamed to talk about money because of how little I made. Now I'm ashamed to talk about it because I'm much. So now I can read Life of extremes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, my first Myron Bolotar novel, uh, deal breaker. I received an advance of $5,000. This is in the U.S. Mm. They did not print it in hardcover. They only did mass market. And they only printed 15,000 mass markets. That's about as low as you can be on the total poll. And you know what? I thought I was the cat's ass. I thought it was the greatest thing that ever happened to somebody in their entire life. Isn't it funny, too? I'm sure that uh, the thrill, that thrill, matches the money thrill. One of the great things about my job is I get to have ridiculously cool experiences, one of which was I was asked to speak to the Democratic senators of the U.S. Senate um, at one of the private retreats. And I said to them, as a writer, I've never chased the money. 
I've always chased the readers. And as politicians, I wish you wouldn't chase the votes, but you would chase the voters' heart. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what... That chase the issues? Chase what's going to appeal to, you know, remind people what makes you special as a senator or, or whatever else. Don't chase, you know, and don't even go for the one quick issue. Don't go for the anti-gay issue or whatever. Go for their hearts. Go for, I've never said to myself, oh, I made X amount of dollars. That's was a goal. Winning the Edgar Award was a great goal. The first time I was on the New York Times bestseller list, which was, I, I know the date, it was the day my last daughter was born. So you always remember when I was just got the call that whole tight had hit number one. And you're right. I mean, getting this this small paperback original deal with Dell was as exciting as anything that's ever happened to me. We talked previously about brand, your brand, and and, and it has been described in one case as middle class desperation. And when I read that, I thought of the great Humphrey Bogart film, Desperate Hours. I don't know if you... I didn't see it. It has Bogart as a kind of a thug going into a suburban home and terrorizing the family. Mm-hmm. And there's something very frightening about that whole concept of invasion of privacy, which I think you, you really get into in this latest book. Yeah. If you're talking branding, I guess I probably have two brands. I have the Myron Bolotar brand, which is more... Um, you know, he's more in that classic private eye tradition, though, I think, with a very modern twist. I mean, Shaman used to talk about walking, the, the hero walking down these mean streets alone. Myron was nowhere alone. He's got, he lives with his, lived in his ba- parents' basement for a number of years. He, he has a best friend. He, he hates being alone. He's not, he's not a tough guy in that way. He's more self-deprecating. Um, so that the Myron Bolotar brand, I think what you're probably talking about is um, the thriller brand, which is... You know, some people also describe it as Hitchcocky, an ordinary man, the extraordinary circumstance. I think that's a fair thing to say. But normally I take things from my daily life. I'm a father of four. I live in the suburbs. And what fascinates me about the suburbs is it is the bastion of the American dream. It's what we all are supposed to want in our lives. Two cars, 2.4 kids, the picket fence, and that life is perfect. And of course, where dreams come true, they also wither and die. So it's a great, ripe arena. It doesn't make life easy. So in the case of Hold Tight, the idea actually came to me when I was sitting with friends of mine who had just confessed to me that they put spyware in their 15-year-old son's computer. And at first I was aghast and horrified. Oh, my God, what an invasion of privacy. And then I started to think about it and said, well, no, there's a point to that. You have this parental responsibility issues involved. You wouldn't look just like a kid wander off any place. And that's where it became, that's at the start of the novel. And what could go wrong and what could go right? How far should you go? Not just how far will you go to protect your child, but how far should you go? When you hold tight. When do you let go? Yeah. And when do you hold tight? Yeah, and that's why I was thought it was so uh, useful for you to write that New York Times uh, opinion piece, sort of the non-fiction version of the book. Yeah. I forwarded it to my 14-year-old daughter. <laughs> It gets back to the impact that uh, fiction has as well as nonfiction. Sure. Well, I'm lucky that, you know, again, I read about one or two pieces a year for the Times on that page, and I pretty much have carte blanche, uh, I think, to do the issues. They don't want me to talk about the Iraq War, <laughs> but I do these sort of these suburban issues that, that I know about. And in this case, they, I think uh, the book is certainly more nuanced on the picture. Not that piece is not meant to be nuanced. It's supposed to be somewhat controversial. Mm-hmm. And so I well, well argued. And, uh, yeah, and I, took, I took the side of putting spiral on the computer, because that's the, that's the tougher side to take, I thought, especially for a newspaper like the New York Times, and we cause more discussion. Well, especially in a country like America, too. 
Yeah, we're all we're all suspicious of anything that 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 seems to deprive us of liberty. Not that it stopped George Bush putting spyware in everyone's. So well, that's the whole computer. thing. We're even more we're even more worried about it now, and, and I'm certainly no George Bush or this administration fan, so it made it even tougher. But it, I thought that that's taking that side would cause a lot more discussion than it did, and be more controversial. And it was also somewhat challenging for me. I don't have spyware on my on my kid's computer. I don't. Right now, my They're answer pretty is, young, though, aren't they? Uh, well, the oldest is 14. Oh, okay. Um, but my answer right now, today, is I have the computer in a public spot where I can walk past at any time. But as soon as she'll have a laptop, and then I have to think about what I will do about that. But, of course, I've got people angry, and got people talking, and that's good. That's, that was a good thing. So It gives you a, a bully pit podium. It does. You know, if I want to whine about something, it's nice that I can whine about it, and the <laughs> newspapers can be seen internationally. That's right. yeah. uh, and the first piece I actually did for them, which, you know, going back to being literary or not, the New York Times many, many years ago on the, op- on the op-ed page, not the magazine section, on the op-ed page, we have a fiction story once a year. And they stopped it um, about a dozen years before. For, I think they stopped it in 1991, they told me. And in 2003, when they first wanted to bring it back, they wanted to do a Father's Day fiction piece. I was the author. Absolutely flattered out of my mind. They called, and they asked me to write it. And my initial reaction was to write a way to say yes, how flattered. And then I went into a total panic because I don't write many short stories. <laughs> and now it's going to be in the New York Times page. <laughs> Everyone in the free world to say. Um, but it went really well. And from that, that's how I started my relationship, uh, writing up that pieces for them. Is there another issue that, uh, that really uh, haunts you and an issue that you'd like to have an impact on? Well, usually it's just a rant. I mean, it's whatever. Uh, and I've ranted out and everything small. I, I, I wrote another piece for the op-ed page that was, I, I, was, I think they told me their most emailed piece of the week. It actually had, a, I think, a, a bigger following than the, the computer software piece. Or I was complaining about the organized smacking that goes on at kids' um, sporting events. I have a seven-year-old son, and I go to the first soccer game, and a mother starts hands out the sheets to sign up for what week you will bring the communal snack for everybody. And, you know, if you're not bringing the cool snack like Doritos, and so do kids really need yet another reason to have Doritos and juice boxes? And if I forget my week, then I'm, you know, you're ostracized, and I'm, oh, it's like a pain in the neck. And mm-hmm. what was funny is that the emperor's new clothes, every parent I know, right? like, do our kids need yet another, you know, in this, in this society where we're all obese, you know, we have all these obesity problems, Every time they play soccer games, they have to then, while they're playing, they're already looking for the communal snack afterwards that I, as a parent, am responsible for bringing. They don't really need this. That didn't happen when I was a kid. We seemed to do just fine. And I wrote a piece about it. Um, and it was every agreed. I mean, I had the one who, who said, yes, my kid does need more Doritos and more ho-ho-hos and, 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 and chocolate cake or whatever they were bringing. Um, and my time stopped it. It, it, and it. And a lot of talent signed petitions using this op-ed piece. So it's even small issues I love. No, I'm, I'm much more passionate about big issues, but that's not really my place. There's enough people who are good at arguing about the Iraq war, for example, but I don't, they don't really need me now. Just in concluding, and I'm, I'm speaking with Harlan Coben, author most recently of Hold Tight. I wonder if we could look at your technique. I've tried to get this answer out of a number of crime fiction writers, and none of them answer it about the secret, and they, they just don't know how they do it, apparently. It's, and I know that, that you spend hours or, or months ruminating on ideas, and, uh, and then you execute in about six months. You talked about switchbacks and twists, that there's one particular line in Hold Tight, 
it's on page 42, and, and it simply states, what would Adam need to stay quiet about in order to, say, to, in order to stay safe? You asked that question a few times, and it's just there. You're also basically telling the reader, well, start thinking. I think the problem is that when you read this, I would say, yeah, it probably is a technique. I'm not conscious of the technique when I'm writing. I don't, I never say, like, oh, you know, I, I need to do this now, or I need a violent scene now, and then a calm scene, or I need to foreshadow this over here. It's just telling the story one word at a time. And somehow those things end up in there. I, I think probably the, the reticence of, of trying to explain how it's done is that, I don't know, I'm going to keep hearing there's a, you know, what's the formula? Yeah. If I could figure out this formula, it would be great. This whole play was the hardest book I ever wrote. Uh, it, took, it was just a, a bear. And I, I never had so many different uh, viewpoints, so many different plots that had to all come together into one at the end. Writing is always hard. I mean, um, it's just always hard. It's never easy. But... I keep thinking it's going to get easier. The same way you're asking about technique or whatever, I keep thinking, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get it now. I'll get the technique, and I'll, I'll get whatever formula there is, and the next book will go much easier. And it never happens. Mm-hmm. Each book is harder than the last one. It's kind of like, the way I describe it is, you're going through a forest. Okay, The first time you're going through the forest, and you're, and you're cutting a path. And the first time you're going through it, it's just impossible because you don't know if you're ever going to get through it. But you kind of go on a very straight line and you get to the end and you know. Second time now, you, you have, you're more confident you can get through it, but you can't take the same path. So you've got to cut through it again. And as you keep writing books, you have to find different paths. They never get easier. A lot of times I will start realizing I'm going down the same path. But the, the comforting factor, the thing you do learn with experience is I will get there. Even though I will doubt myself, even though I will hate myself, even though I will curse at myself, even though it seems bleak, in the back of my mind, I now know I will finish the book and it will be okay. But that's really the only thing that I've learned. I, I can't say you know, that's, that's what about technique. Two uh, final questions. One, how would you like your children to remember you? Okay, as a great father. I want my children to remember me the same way I remember my father. I look back at my father as one of the great men I've ever known in my life. And as a father now, I almost try to figure out how he did it. Like he, as though he were a magician who pulled some kind of trick on me that I can't quite figure out. How did he manage to, to push me to do my best without ever pushing? How did he instill the fact that I should always strive without ever making me feel like if I don't strive, I would lose his love? How did he manage to get that balance? And I hope that my kids will look at, back at me the same way I look at my father. That would be the answer. That's lovely. Thank you. Finally, about influence, and this is a standard question, but I love the answers typically. Uh, the authors that you get the most pleasure and insight from. Well, again, my favorite author is Philip Roth. Um, I don't know if you see much of him. In terms of, there's a difference in influence and inspire, I guess. And um, educate and entertain, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm no longer at a, at a stage anymore where authors influence me. Any form of greatness inspires me. Because the feeling that I get when I listen to Damien Rice's CDO a couple years ago, or when I see a, a fantastic work of art, or when I read a Philip Roth novel or whoever else, I want other. I want to give people that feeling. I, I, rather than saying, "Oh, how can I do this?" This is something that young writers will learn um, when they start to mature and realize they're going to start doing well. It's not. I don't read a book and say, "I wish I had written that." You don't try to copy it. Well, I don't, I don't say I wish I'd written that book, because I was not meant to write that book. Even if it was a fantastic, wonderful... Philip Roth was meant to write that book, you know, or Ian McEwan was meant to write that book. I was not meant to write that book. 
or Dennis Lehane was meant to write that book. But it inspires me to say, how can I give the reader the same sensation, same thrill that I'm getting from reading this? How do I up my game even more? And that's always something that inspires me. Can you describe the that feeling of inspiration? Can you describe what Philip Roth, what he does that does it for you? I don't know. It's the mixture of, of entertaining, making me think. Another favorite line is Tom Parada, uh, a more recent writer. Um, I love with those guys the sometimes the feeling of authenticity, like this is actually happening. Some writers just speak to you. One of the things that no one in my generation yet, with the exception maybe of Tom Parada, speaks to me about the, the, the Jewish New Jersey experience, let's say, which is what I am, the way Philip Roth does, even though he's a full generation ahead of me. A certain feeling sometimes when you're reading a novel is two things. One of that novel immersion I described before. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just that, that, that thing that's, he's speaking to me. I mean, I'm getting him. He's getting me. You know, that, that sort of feeling you yeah. have. It's almost an intimacy. As you said, a connection. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much thank for you your much connection. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Right.